Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Corner Store Podcast, a quarantined edition. I'm your host, Kevin Koval, and in the Google Hangout now, we have a uh, really incredible writer and editor, someone who uh, really seems to work tirelessly uh, for uh, the good cause. Um, Maya Shenoir is a author of, of several books. Uh, including Lockdown and Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better, and co-editor of the anthology, Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States. Uh, she is also the editor-in-chief ch- uh, at Truth Out. Maya, welcome to The Corner Store, and thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, appreciate you. Um, I, I would imagine in these in these days, uh, you know, I don't know if it's more than than at other times, but you must be pretty busy right now. Oh yeah. It's, it's really busy, but it's like the energizing kind of busy. And I, I think it's, you know, being in the news business, you go through these years, like the first couple of years Trump was elected after Trump was elected. I was like, Oh my God, like, I love this, but why am I doing it to myself? <laughs> because it just feels like, you know, the weight on your head is just pushing, pushing, pushing. And right now, as someone who's not only working in social justice news, but also has been an abolitionist organizer and author for years, I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Like, (laughs) abolition is suddenly on the minds and on the tongues of people in the mainstream who when my first book came out were like interviewing me with like little a little laugh in their voice because they're like so you want prisons to just go away okay (laughs) you know and now like this is a conversation people are actually talking about getting rid of cops in the context of black lives matter and it's just so yeah it's it's a tiring time, but it's also just invigorating and hopeful. And and why do you think that turning point happened now? What is it about this moment? Uh, what is it about the you know the, where where public discourse is at? Why why is it happening now? I think it's just well, not just. There's many many factors, but one of the main things to me is just decades and decades of black abolitionist organizers, particularly black abolitionist feminist organizers, doing the work, doing the work, laying the foundations and building toward this moment in so many different ways. And, you know, there were obviously some recent catalysts that made made an impact and the ground was ready in Minneapolis and several horrible acts of police violence against black people one after another. But of course we know this is happening all the time occurred and people were ready, you know? So I think there's a sense, especially in some of these mainstream news reports that abolition like suddenly happened, you know, (laughs) like people just, got the idea and no you know we've had Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Miriam Kava, Ruth, uh, Rachel Herzing, Mimi Kim like so many people doing the work doing the work doing the work 
Andrea Ritchie, Beth Ritchie, everyone involved in Insight. And so I don't know, like, I think it's, it's also been really exciting in this moment to see people recognizing that legacy, even if they're thinking it just happened just now, they're simultaneously saying, oh yeah, like all of these black women organizers actually were doing the work and we're going to give them space. So, so yeah, it's an interesting moment in a lot of ways and, you know, requires a lot of all of us to yeah, and so how do I, I, I have a bunch of questions, I guess, about about this moment. So first of all, how do you, you know, even what, what you just kind of ended on, how how do people maintain in this moment? And and because one of the worries, of course, is it, as people uh, come into the work, perhaps in some instances for the first time, that there won't be the ability to sustain the work. So how do how do people how, like you've been in this work for a while now? Like how do you how do you maintain? How do people maintain? Uh, you know the 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 integrity, the fire, the discipline in order to sustain in this in, in this work. Yeah. So I think it's a little different when it comes to news and when it comes to organizing. And so I'll put my like news and writer hat on for a minute. And we're we're figuring that out. We're figuring out how you maintain. Um, one of the things that's happening, obviously, right now is that COVID has overlapped with all of these amazing uprisings. And so at Truthout, we had already put some policies in place for COVID to help people grapple with with the time we put in place like unlimited sick days. And I think some of this transfers over to the work we need to do internally and in organizing and just in ourselves. So we put in place unlimited sick days and encourage people to take them. We gave people a bonus, like a modest bonus to be like, here, these are challenging times. Like we know you need support to do this. And, um, we, we put in place some policies that kind of gave people space to absorb the moment, like childcare policies and just like thinking through what are the different ways in which this is affecting people. And I think that that kind of community care type work, like that's what's happening in our workplace, but that more broadly is, is a sustaining factor throughout all kinds of social justice movements. And I think it's really cool right now that some of that healing justice work that people have been doing simultaneous with abolition and mutual aid work is also coming into play partially because we're in the middle of COVID and people have been building mutual aid networks in their communities thinking about care like really thoughtfully and talking about like what do we need to do to support in this in this movement moment so that's good and i i also think you know people have been laying the groundwork not only for abolition and abolitionist wins in the context of like you know are we getting rid of prisons but also in building the world we want to live in like Abolishing police, abolishing prisons isn't just 
about getting rid of police and prisons. It's also about building what we want the world to look like. <laughs> Not just what we want instead, but what we want like entirely. Like Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, abolition is presence. It's not just absence of prisons, it's presence. So I think one of the really inspiring things that's happening is in Minneapolis and beyond, people have started doing this like concrete mutual aid work and building up like ways of thinking about safety that go beyond police and prisons that also are intended to support people in movement work. People have been doing that forever, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that that those are things, you know, practices that we all want to turn to. It's like, okay, that is not like a separate thing that you do, supporting each other. That's part of the work of abolition. So well, doing that on a personal level and then doing it on like a project level and like we're trying to do in truth out. right and, yeah. s- and say more what 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 you mean by abolition i mean um because yeah. there you know there's even in in and i am surprised to see it on mainstream news outlets um and i wonder if even maybe some of the you know talking heads saying the terms are even aware of of you know the the nuance and and even the meaning of some of these. So there's you know there there's there's the the move to defund the police, which is not abolishing the police. And there's a movement towards abolishing prisons and the police. And so what what do what do you mean by these these different uh, nuances and terms? Yeah. So I think a lot of times when it's talked about like right in this moment in the mainstream abolish the police and defund the police are used kind of like to mean the same thing and sometimes they're used to mean like what Camden did which was dismantle their current police department and build a different police department that spent even more money and so that's not what that's not what we're talking about (laughs) and so abolition is a project that is about dismantling structures of policing, prisons, and surveillance, all of those things, and not just like the buildings called prisons and the departments called police departments, but a much wider network of state surveillance and policing and punishment, which includes all kinds of things. It includes electronic monitoring, It includes, in my definition, the foster care system and all of those policing ways that 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 system has. It includes um, psychiatric institutions that are mandated. It includes lockdown drug treatment centers. It includes like this vast array of things. So dismantling those structures and simultaneously building life-giving structures and life-giving kind of communities, right? And infusing those priorities with the resources they need. And so sometimes this is called like, like I think some of the ways that it's being talked about are useful in terms of funding and then reinvesting money. In, in priorities like healthcare and education and the arts and housing and all of those really, really vital things, I think that's 
that's real and that's good, but it's not the only thing. It's, it's also a complete kind of redirection of what we want our society to look like, because since our society is built on these really oppressive structures and abolition recognizes that prisons and policing grew up out of slavery and colonialism and they can't be reformed. Right. So, but since we're all living inside these structures, it's very easy to think you're tearing those structures down, but then build up a different kind of police or a different kind of prison. So when I talk about this idea about building the society that we want, it's, it's also about creativity and it's about courage and it's about thinking, thinking about how to make things new in a way that actually meets the needs that people have. And that said, it's not from scratch, right? Like people have been building and doing abolition in all kinds of ways already. And part of that is in, you know, really concrete abolitionist projects like the Audre Lorde Project Safe Neighborhoods Program and Rachel Herzing's Build the Block pilot in Oakland and all the work that's been done here in Chicago in 10 million different ways, including thinking about Project Nia and the Just Practice Collaborative and ways that abolition has been kind of put into practice very concretely. But also we, we all do abolition every day in different ways. Like we're not calling the police every single time we have a problem. When my toddler steals my oatmeal, I'm not going to be like 911, you know? And so we're, we're dealing with things ourselves. And so we have to take some of those practices that we do all the time and think about how they can translate to different situations. Another thing um, in terms of doing abolition just day to day, obviously one of, one of the things is don't call the cops. And that has been taken out of context in the mainstream news, like, all the time <laughs> in two ways um, over the past few weeks. One of them is, like, this idea that we have to build a different system for who you call instead of the cops. And I think in some cases, maybe that's true. Like, we do need to set up our own networks for what we do when, like, a real and true emergency happens in which you need someone from the outside to come in and help you. And I think that I mentioned Rachel Herzing's Build the Block project in Oakland a few years ago, and I think what was so cool about that was she actually had people on a block like talk to each other and say, what skills do you have? Like, How can we create a neighborhood directory so we have people we can call who care about each other when something happens? So there's, there's all kinds of projects happening like that. But beyond that, people call the police about all kinds of ridiculous shit all the time. That's most of what the police do is ridiculous shit. Like, you know, your downstairs neighbor's music is too loud. You call the police. Like, you don't know who's in the alley. You call the police because you're like, who's that person in the alley? You see like a person who's homeless peeing on the street and you're like, uh-oh, you know, and 
I'm in my neighborhood Facebook group for Rogers Park, and I'm like, people are calling the police about fireworks thinking they're gunshots, like, every hour. <laughs> like, you think after a minute, they'd be like, oh, oh, those are fireworks. I've learned to identify the sound of fireworks based on constantly calling the cops thinking they're gunshots, you know? So... So that's something, like, we don't need to be calling someone about all of those situations. We need to be getting to know our neighbors. And I say that, like, I know what I'm talking about, but really I learned that from Miriam Cabo, like, nine years ago, because I was like, I don't want to get to know my neighbors. How would that help anything? Like, I don't want to get to know my neighbors for all these different reasons, one of which I'm worried they'll, like, find out about all my, you know, radical political beliefs and not want to say hi to me in the hallway <laughs> and stuff like that you know right. like um, well so and, and my you um, you've been you've been in this work for for a while now how do you how do you as as a writer as an organizer as an editor as an activist and as an abolitionist how do you come into the work like what what brings you and prepares you i mean i i don't i mean maybe we're all born abolitionists but then we get um, you know, miseducated into believing that we need these uh, systems in order to detain and arrest people. But but how do you how do you come to kind of deconstruct that knowledge and come into this this work? Yeah, good question. I've been actually wondering whether we're all born abolitionists. As I'm watching my toddler grow up, and yeah. he's like a human experiment. On this issue, <laughs> right. like I think he's abolitionist. Like he's not, you know, he doesn't know about the cops because of my assiduous shielding him from media involving cops and like telling him the cops are not our friends when he sees a police car. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think he's abolitionist. He doesn't get that stuff yet. But I, I came to this work for a couple of reasons, and. Both of them were personal. So I started writing about prisons when a friend of mine was detained and then deported, and I went to visit him when he was detained. I was in college at the time, and he was just locked up in a county jail, and I went with his mother to visit him, and we were in one of those visiting room situations where you're like sitting across from someone across a window and you have to talk on the phone to them. You can't be in the same space. And I was sitting there and you're kind of like putting our hands on the glass. I was sitting there realizing that he was going to be deported and he was not going to get to hug his mother. Like, he could not hug his mother, even though he was about to not see her for 10 years or more, you know? And so that kind of just, like, hit me like a bag of bricks, and I turned my attention in terms of writing and thinking about my future in journalism toward this issue. And then a few years later, uh, my sister was arrested and she was initially arrested in school, and I believe she was put on probation initially, and then she was incarcerated in juvenile detention. 
And then from there, she was just in and out of prison, in and out of jail for 15 years. And also in and out of many of these carceral alternatives, like drug court and electronic monitoring and, you know, mandated treatment. She was, she was in all of those. And she was actually in drug court um, a few months ago when she died of an overdose. And so... I that is what truly truly brought me to this work now 15 years ago was when she was arrested and one of the things that has kept me in this work even when I have felt like frustrated and like it's not going anywhere and like why are we publishing so much stuff about prisons when that's not what's popular in the news I I remind myself like People are fucking in cages and dying. Like, millions of people are being tortured by this system, and I'm talking to one of them every single day. And now that I'm not talking to her because she was fucking traumatized by this system every day of her life by 15 years, over 15 years in various ways, like, that is with me, like, every second of every single day and I know that that trauma was such a major factor in her death and so was the fact that she was in an abstinence only mandated program and after she left it she immediately overdosed because that's what happens in those programs so yeah for me it's it's really fundamentally personal yeah and I'm so I'm very I heard about your sister and I'm sorry I'm really sorry for thank you thank you I appreciate that um so and and where 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 do you guys come from where where are you all from here so and i say here like kind of very specifically so i live in rogers park now and i was born in edgewater and then we lived in rogers park and then i i went to high school in Spokane, so niles west and then Lived a few different places in the country, but ended up right back, back here yeah. in Roger Park. Right. <laughs> so that story is not super interesting. And so, wh- wh- how do you how do you navigate as um, like with your family in in this work? Like, what do they think of your radical? I mean, you said you were you know nervous to uh, tell your neighbors about your radical politics. Um, does your family does your family share a radical politic? Well, I think that come to that point, <laughs> um, it's funny because they've, they've always been, I think, liberal. And as I started kind of pushing further and further on this prison issue and talking about abolition, it was kind of, I guess I'll compare it to like, Israel and Palestine, maybe, <laughs> in terms of talking to my parents, because, you know, I, we're Jewish, and I grew up thinking, like, it's complicated, you know, Israel and Palestine, yeah, it's so sad that, that they're fighting with each other, and then, as I got older, I realized, you know, fuck. Like, yeah, Israel's a colonial state. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. and, um... I I had, that was kind of like an instantaneous mind-blowing moment for me where I was like, 
wow, this is like, this is an occupation. This was the Nakba. This is like actually like ongoing oppression that I'm complicit in, like, and have been my whole life living a lie. And I feel like they've come around on that. Oh, <laughs> so wow. if they can come around on that, yeah. Right. Over the course of years of talking about it and um, the influence of our dear Brant Rosen. Yeah. Shout out Rabbi Brant. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> He went through, like, an amazing process of self-discovery that he, like, took public, you know? He did that in public. And so I think that there's been some of that, like, recognizing just, like, the gravity of the system and then realizing that you actually can't fix it. You can't fix Israel. You can't fix prison. And I think that for my parents also, it was the process of, like, being just fucking thrown into the center of it, you know, with everything happening with my sister. You know, when she was first sent to jail, juvenile jail, my parents and a little bit I, too, thought maybe it'll, like, scare her into realizing that she shouldn't be, you know fucking up i don't i don't even know she wasn't hurting anyone right <laughs> you know? right she like had some drugs in school but yeah i think we thought okay this might like just be like a wake-up call because it's so scary and it wasn't that at all and then every single other involvement that she had with the system it became clear to my family well this doesn't work this doesn't work this doesn't work this is making it worse. Yeah, it's and, injury after injury. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that all of those things, like, were not only not only not helping my sister or not helping other people, but actually fundamentally harming her and harming our family. There was one point at which the police like stormed my parents house like there were eight police officers all over their house right after my niece died of sid and because my sister had had all this previous involvement with the system when my mother called 911 for you know an ambulance eight cops showed up and my niece Died and my sister was taken away. Child Protective Services uh, showed up, and this was this was the emergency response. Right, was taking away her other child and locking my sister in a hospital room. And meanwhile, my parents still haven't gotten some of their stuff back from the cops. And this was five years ago. And so I think all of that has brought them like I don't know if they would call themselves abolitionists but they seem to agree with almost everything I say now so yeah so yeah it's a question of like do you need the label or what but yeah I think they're there I think that's one of the things that does it for people is just seeing the impact up close absolutely you, yeah you there's an urge there's an urgency there then yeah 
which 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 is one of the things I think with that. By the way, that is my puppy in the background. So give me one moment as I as I close this door. Hold on. Um, sorry, man. Um, you know that is that is that is something I, I wonder about. Then, as as a white person in this work for a sustained amount of time, um, you know, how do you? Like what, what? What do you think? What are some of the contributions, roles white people can play now and in the future? Um, as you know, we move closer, hopefully, toward abolition and reimagining a different mode of engagement with one another in this in in this society that we rebuild ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a number of things. I think one basic ingredient is humility and vulnerability for white people. Um, I, I feel like, especially now that we're in this moment when so many more white people in particular seem to be interested in abolition, but interested in kind of having the fact sheet about it and then sometimes in being the experts, which is particularly annoying, I think, <laughs> But also sometimes in saying, don't worry, other white people, it's not about taking away the institutions that give you comfort. Hmm. You know? And it actually is. It actually is about taking away police completely. Um, Miriam had an op-ed in the New York Times recently, which I think everyone read, um, including detractors, <laughs> called uh-huh. We Actually Are saying abolish the police or some variation of that headline and I thought that was brilliant because it was like yeah we're actually asking for police to go away completely and police at least in the form that many white people have come to believe are there to protect white people and particularly white people with property and so I think we have to confront that within ourselves we have to like take on that discomfort and be like, okay, why does this make me uncomfortable? Like, what am I actually worried about? You know, I definitely had to do that work for myself, by the way. Like, I don't want to make it seem as if I like just came to be this, this white person who was immediately like perfectly abolitionist. Like I'm not perfect now. And I definitely did not start out <laughs> that way. Um, but, like, right, we have to confront because, like, many of us did grow up believing that the solution, if you're in a dangerous situation, however you define that, is police because the police are there for us. And so, so we have to, like, really, really challenge that in ourselves and challenge that not only in our minds, but in our responses, in our practices, in our enthusiasm about various actions over other actions like challenging why am I constantly lifting up this idea of peaceful protest (laughs) you know why am I constantly lifting up the things that seem non-threatening to the systems that I believe in whether that's police whether that's capitalism whether that's actually white supremacy you know and so so that's that's a thing. I think also, as always, 
following the lead of black movements and particularly black abolitionist feminist movements that have been doing this work for so long and taking cues there. Of course, we all have to be doing our own work and we have to be thinking about the ways we can organize within our smaller community. You know, like if you're in a predominantly white community, you need to organize that community too. But I think taking cues as to what's needed from Black-led movements is, is always important. And then also... I think changing practices on a really basic level that includes not calling the police, which sounds like such a small thing, but is actually like a huge difference for so many people. And of course, I'm not saying like, if you're in a life-threatening domestic violence situation, you can think of nothing else to do besides that. Like, you know, yeah, we don't have those structures in place. Most of us don't have those structures in place yet. So it's not about shaming, but it is about like all of the white people in the Rogers Park neighborhood news group who are calling the police because their neighbors are smoking weed. Like, you know, that that would be a huge shift right there. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, no, that's that's real. And and so look, in addition to the the organizing, the activism, I mean, you're also running a really essential news outlet. Um, and and so so at this point now, uh, Truth Out is is how how long have you guys been in business, and and how how long have you been there? So Truth Out has been around since 2001. It launched on September 10th, 2001. <laughs> so yeah and yeah. after that became very focused on anti-war news in particular in addition to kind of just pushing back against the bush presidency overall i joined the staff in 2007 as a staff reporter and editor and then i started a union at Truth Out and organized the staff along with a couple other folks in 2008 and 2009. Mm. And then what I will say is that our previous executive director chose to leave as soon as the union was recognized and the board decided to appoint me to lead the organization because they were like, well, <laughs> you organized the union. You, you like, asked for it, that. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so part of Truth Out over the past 12 years, God, 13, no, right. Past almost 11 years of being in charge of this work, being the editor-in-chief, and now I have a publisher also who co-runs the organization with me but part of that work has been figuring out how to shape an organization that kind of lives its values so covers the news like publishes 365 days a year and tries to live that social justice mission in the writing we do and in the editing we do, but then also trying to live it in terms of our workplace practices because 
the whole reason I'm here basically is because of organizing around workplace practices. So those have been my kind of dual missions over the past decade or so yeah yeah Yeah. and and of course you know you've you've um you know been the author of and the editor of uh some really incredible and and i think key works um as in as all these roles i mean how do you when do you find the time to also write oh good question so i have a book coming out by the way next month it's called by any other name which i co-wrote with victoria law And that one, I literally was writing in the middle of the night and on the weekends when my baby was napping. um, When I was pregnant with him, I think I wrote a chapter in the week between my maternity leave starting and him being born. (laughs) So it's like... It really, I can't, I don't have any sustainable practices for that. <laughs> I'm very tired. I'm a very tired person. But um, I did I did take some time off to write Lockdown, Locked Out. And I would also say that, like, if I could, like, if I were a person with more time who didn't have a dependent who wakes up at like 5.30 a.m., I would probably recommend writing first thing in the morning because that's what got me through my first book was just like waking up and just like immediately writing stuff down, like no matter what it was, except pertaining to the book somewhat. That was how I wrote like almost my entire first book was doing the research at various other times and then waking up and I wake up at weird times. I'm an insomniac. So I would wake up at like three 30 in the morning and I'd be like, sweet. I don't have to do anything else. I'm just going to like write whatever's in my head. And at that moment, you also don't have all those voices in your head. that are like, you're bad. You're not a good writer. You don't know anything. Like that's not happening at that hour. So yeah, that that's a good one for me. That's a good time to. Uh... Yeah, I I agree. I find the morning that that's the morning is when I find the space <laughs> and and the mental space to to work in that way. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Maya, I, I I appreciate the conversation and all the insights. Where where are the best places uh, for people to find you, your work, and and you know just keep in tune with everything that that you're doing? Yeah, so I would definitely check out truthout.org that's where I spend most of my time. Um, also, my website is mayashenwar.com. Um, and in Chicago, I organize with Love and Protect, which I didn't even mention because I was talking about all kinds of other things. So I apologize for that. But it's loveprotect.org. And Love and Protect is a collective that supports criminalized survivors of violence and particularly survivors of color who are women, non-binary and trans survivors of color. So um, that's another place to look is loveprotect.org. Great. And what what is the name of the new book that comes out uh, just probably a few weeks after this episode drops? 
Yeah, it's prison by any other name. The harmful consequences of popular reforms. Great. And it's on what press? The new press. Great. Okay. Well, Maya Shinmar, thank you so much for all of the work that you do, that you've been doing. Um, I hope, you know, in these times you do get a little bit of rest, particularly with uh, a two-year-old. Um, and uh, But also, you know, continue fighting the good fight. And thanks so much for being in the corner store today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also, please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com, corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.